So from this passage, from this verse 12, we're going to be thinking about a vision, if you like, for a local church. I know that uh, the church has grown here, you've been going for 51 years and perhaps you're at a point where you're thinking, well, what next? Well, I'm not going to tell you what next, but I'm going to be putting in place, I hope, something that will just help you think things through and say, well, this is very, very important. This bit is very, very important. So I hope it will be appropriate uh, for you. But before we get to that, let's just again bow our heads and pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, we want to thank you that it stands true forever. It resounds in our spirits, in our consciences. Lord, when we read it, there is a sense in which it reads us. Exposes, O Lord, our sins, our hypocrisies. And yet at the same time stirs our appetite for you and for the good things of Christ. And Lord, we thank you so much that your word is full of promises of your love, your forgiveness. O Lord, which as sinners we so much need. And Lord, we just pray now, please, we cannot bless ourselves. I can't bless these dear people. Lord, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to move among us and to touch our hearts and to speak to our consciences and our innermost being. Lord, feed our souls like a good shepherd from your word. Please bless us now and help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you just scan verses 8 to 12, you'll see there um, three reasons why Christians should show Christian love, especially to each other. Obviously that particularly applies to a church, all Christians together in a church. Three reasons why we should love one another. First, because God is love. Verses 8 and 9, whoever does not love does not know God. Well, if we know God... God is love, then that's the first reason we should love. The second is because God loved us by sending the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 10 and 11. So God is love in himself, but now secondly, he has acted in this wonderful way of giving his son so generously for our redemption. So that's the, if he's done that, then it encourages us to follow him. But the third is because as Christians show love, God's love is completed or perfected. It comes to its proper fulfilment, it says there in verse 12. And I want to take up that verse 12 and say to you, is that part of your vision? Is this matter of Christians loving one another part of your vision? This is a, a good time. It's an anniversary. It's a good time to remind ourselves what we're about. And one of the primary, primary purposes of the church, of course, is to share the good news of Jesus in a lost world. Well, how does this matter of us loving one another relate to that? 
And I think it does very powerfully. Let's just read verse 12. It says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now, as I say, we live in a secular society, a sceptical society. We talk about God and they say, oh, where is your God? I can't, we can't see him. Well, the New Testament has two particular verses, both written by John, which seem to address that very thing. Oh, we, we can't see God that you're talking about. One of the New Testament answers, if you just turn back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18. Remember these words at the beginning of John's Gospel? And it says this, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. Oh, hello, we've just been... That, that rings a bell, doesn't it? No one has ever seen God... But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So John would say to our sceptical friends who say we can't see God, he would say, well, if you had been around in the time of Jesus, in the first century, you would have seen God. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So that's a kind of first answer to those who say, we can't see your God. But the world would then understandably say, have a question. Well, you know, that's all very well, but that was back then. We live now. So where is your God? And the shocking answer is in verse 12. Where can we see your God? It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. And the implication of that text putting it alongside John 1.18, is clearly that the living God can be, quote, seen, met with, encountered now in a loving Christian church. And I'm going to argue that Christian love is very often the key to opening up people to listen to the gospel. Love between ourselves must be central to a church's vision. No one has ever seen God. Where's your God? Come to church. Whoa. That's how it should be. Come to church, you'll meet him. Whoa. The great obstacle in uh, William Tyndale's day uh, to people hearing the gospel was, of course, that the people of Britain did not have the Bible in their own language. 
So Tyndale, in the beginning of the 16th century, pursued his dream of Bible translation, for which he was eventually murdered in Belgium. He remembered the story. Because people need to hear the truth of the gospel. And he wanted people to have it in their own language. And of course, people today still need the truth of the gospel. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing forgiveness and eternal life. That's how it was then in Tyndale's day. They just couldn't read it for themselves. There wasn't a translation. Our situation now is different from the 16th century. Once again, the truth is not being heard by our nation, but it's not because the Bible is unavailable. You can buy a Bible in W.H. Smith or anywhere else, in English. The trouble is that people are not interested. There's no awareness of their need. They can't see God. In fact, other gods, as we shall see, have blinded their eyes and taken over their lives. They need to meet God. Other gods have come in. Our society, as we say, is secular. It believes God is either not there or irrelevant. Too far away to matter. So it lives for this world. That's what secularism means. And the people are enslaved, if you like, by a kind of trinity. A a false trinity of three things. Hedonism, consumerism and relativism. A trinity of isms. Hedonism is the outlook of living only for pleasure, for your own happiness in this life. And consumerism is kind of like the secular, quotes, gospel... The good news that says the way to find that happiness is through material goods and services of your choice. You can choose all this stuff and it will make you happy. And relativism is the whole philosophy, philosophy which undergirds all this, which says there's no such thing as absolute truth by which to guide our lives. Everything's just a matter of opinion, right and wrong, True and false. It's all just a matter of opinion. So there's nothing worth living or dying for except you deciding what you want to please yourself. That's what life is about. So people are bound up by these three attitudes which dominate and enslave the majority of our land and make it very hard to get a hearing for Jesus Christ. We want a hearing for Jesus Christ as we come up to Christmas. We want people to come and listen. As we think about vision for the church, I'm arguing that though this secular consumer outlook is a very hard nut to crack, nevertheless, it is vulnerable to true Christian love because though no one has ever seen God if we love one another God lives in us and that's the great matter let's think for a little while about secularism's problems 
All right? Secularism's problems. The secular outlook is weak at three significant points. And identifying these weaknesses will help us formulate a biblical vision for the church and how we try to engage with the secular society around us. What are these weak points? Well, the first one I call spiritual destitution. Spiritual destitution. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. We'll read that verse in a moment. God's God's word tells us that human beings have, as it were, two parts. A dual nature, a visible part and an invisible part. We are body and soul. We are flesh and spirit. Jesus makes that plain in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 in some quite fearful words. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, that's one thing, but cannot kill the soul. Ah, that's a different matter. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here is the Lord Jesus explaining to us these. there there, there are two aspects to a human being, body and soul. Now the point is that there is, by the way God has constituted us, a spiritual side to human beings. We have souls, we are ever-living souls. But that very truth, secularism, tries to suppress and deny and say, no, 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 you're just a body, you're just DNA or whatever it is. Secularism tries to suppress the idea of the spiritual side of us, but nevertheless it's still there. It's still in people because they're human beings. And that means, for example, that people, for all their consumerism, for all their stuff, they find that in the end, material things can't satisfy them. They, they feel that they found, and then it doesn't work for them. They have as much money as they like, but no. The world leaves them disappointed, spiritually destitute. And this is why, though we are a more wealthy society than ever, we seem to be a less happy society. Because everyone thinks that's going to be happy, and it doesn't. So you get the rise, therefore, in reaction to that of kind of nonsensical new age and weird religions. But it's a sign that people have got to have something. Those things are an expression of the spiritual emptiness, a cry from the heart, if you like. Secularism doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give my life meaning or purpose, ultimately. Secularism is vulnerable at this point. And it means that when people come into contact with a church where God is obviously present... 
God lives in us, verse 12, they are disturbed. They may even become a a bit inquisitive. There's something going on here. So that's their first problem, spiritual destitution. Secondly, problem with secularism is moral disintegration. Secularism says everything's relative, it's all just a matter of opinion, there's no real ultimate right and wrong. And that means the idea of a secular society that is law-abiding and decent actually is an illusion. Millions of people, all ultimately living for self, are bound to start colliding with one another and begin to treat each other badly. And the lie of the decent secular society has been proved over the last 50, 60 years as the country has moved away from any kind of real attachment to its Christian heritage. We've seen an increase in trouble and crime and broken families and personal fear and the prison population reaching record levels and drugs and we're staying in a B&B across the road. There's a park. Your pastor said to us, don't go in there. That's where the, the drugs are dealt. You know, that's not a good place to go. All right. That's what, that, so there's a moral disintegration that inevitably follows. And many ordinary people have begun to get worried about the way their communities are becoming dark and dangerous places where 50, 60 years ago a woman could walk the street on a, even on a dark night and know that she was going to be safe because it, you know, it was, this was England, this was Britain, this was a, a moral place. But now, oh, be careful. Many ordinary people begin to sense that something is wrong, that perhaps not even the police or the government, whoever that's going to be in coming months, that they won't be able to actually fix this. Something is off the leash, which is... So again, secularism is weak at this point. And people might just be asking, why? What what, what has happened to us? So that's the second weak point. And thirdly, there is social isolation, which is a weak point of the secular society. The secular society is for many a very lonely society. It's okay if you're, as I was saying this morning, if you're young and you've got money and all that stuff, but the old and the disabled and those who have been misused and abused and feel unwanted, it's hard. Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, Matthew 24, verse 12. And you see that worked out sometimes in in stuff. 
It's not so popular now, but there used to be a, a program, I think, on Radio 2, Country Music, with Nick Barraclough, all right? And sometimes country music is very kind of edgy, it's very raw and straightforward and how life is for people. And I remember driving one week and just having this on the radio and a song came on which was titled 20 Years and Two Husbands Ago. And the song is, is, a, is a woman looking at, at her lined face in the mirror She's been messed up by life and reviewing her past. And the lyrics went, I remember the day when he said I do and the kitchen I was standing in when he said we're through. But that was 20 years and two husbands ago, water under the bridge. I guess that's all life really is. Country music is very often popular with many people because they're able to identify with it. This is the mess. This is how it was. This is how painful life is. It's reflecting their own experiences. Unloved. Dropped. Used for a little while and then kicked out. Crushed by life. And here, once again, is a place where a loving church can hold out a hand to people. Here are people in need of real love. And our verse tells us that no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So there are secularism's problems. So let's think now about love's answers. Love's answers. It's kind of like our second heading, right? The Bible tells us, of course, that the key to communication is we speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Love is a crucial factor. It actually opens people's ears to listen to you because they know that what you're saying, you mean it well for them. Love is the crucial factor in opening up hard hearts. Let's review those three secular vulnerabilities and see how Christian love can help. And this must therefore be a crucial matter in thinking about a vision for the church. Let's think about that spiritual destitution, that inner emptiness. People need to hear the truth of God who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3. But in a world that treats treats all truth claims as just matters of opinion, they need more than a cogent argument for God. Cogent arguments for God are great. I'm all for them. But they need more than that. They'll say, well, I've heard a cogent argument for this or for that. They need more than a cogent argument about God. They need to somehow meet with him. And as text says, it should be that in a loving church, they come and see God, they meet with God. As the people love one another.
In a church of loving Christians, people can know God's presence and meet him today. How many testimonies of conversion I've heard, I can't remember, where it it wasn't the sermon (laughs) that did anything first of all. Rather, you hear something like this, I came into the church and I just knew something was different here. The people seemed so genuine and full of love and I felt that God was here. And that's what set me seeking. Just thinking about, we run a a monthly thing for older people, a monthly um, lunch. And I remember one of the older people coming and I'm not sure at this point she was a Christian. And she just said to me, it's strange, when I come here, it's the only place that I feel I'm at home, that this is real. Everywhere else I feel out of place. But here, it's different, you see. That's how it ought to be. That inner emptiness is challenged, blown away as they find God himself. It's very humbling for the preacher because the preacher always wants them to quote the sermon to say, oh, it's that sermon that did it for me, you know. Well, maybe. (laughs) It's not so good for preachers, it's humbling for us. But it's great for the church. Great for the church. Where we love one another, it's not just the preacher who counts, but... The Lord Jesus is present himself by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't been grieved. He's not removed from the, from the community. He's there, enjoying, if you like, the presence being among God's people who love one another, obeying God's commandments. People meet God. Let's think about that Moral disintegration. Let's think about that moral turmoil. We think of bullying on the internet. We think of bullying at school. Uh, Young people having to be treated for sexually transmitted diseases. Neighbourhoods, as I say, not safe after dark. Why do so many non-Christian families, why do they become happy to send their kids along to a Christian club? which perhaps your church runs. Because they see the church is different. And when the church is a loving community where the standards of God's law are upheld with love, people know that their children are going to have fun and be safe there. And they can trust the church. They know their kids are not going to get beaten up or offered drugs, or or whatever, or molested in some way. And they begin to see that, hey, isn't that what we're finding at church? Isn't that the way society at large ought to be? Even used to be, but now it could be. And so becomes an opening for the gospel. A loving church opens things, you see. Or let's think about that, um, that social isolation 
Let's think about that crushing loneliness that many find in a secular world. The consumer society, as I say, leaves many people unwanted and lonely. But here again, Christian love can open hearts to the gospel. No one has ever seen God, but if we love, if we love one another, God lives in us. His love is made complete in us. Some years ago, I was speaking at another church in Guildford. And before I got up to speak, I got into conversation with this very old lady. Her name was Greta. And she just sat down next to me and we started talking. And she was an Austrian Jew. And she just told me her story. She was a young woman when Hitler took over Austria in 1938. As a Jew, she knew she needed to escape, and she managed to get away to Britain. Her brother was not so lucky and died, she said, in Auschwitz. But in Britain, she married an Englishman eventually, and they had a happy life. But when he died few years before I met her, Greta's life fell apart. She'd lived for him. She, you know, the, she, he was her life. And now he was gone. And she pondered the past, she said, and she saw the terrible inhumanities of the Holocaust towards the Jewish people. And she looked at a lonely and seemingly pointless future Deserted and depressed, she contemplated suicide. On the night after her husband's funeral, she said, she got together all the tablets she could find in her house and lined them up on the kitchen table and was set to just have some kind of overdose and hopefully take her life. She was alone it was about 11 o'clock at night. There she was contemplating this. And it was just then she heard on her back door. And a Christian neighbour, touched by Greta's bereavement, seeing how lonely she was, just felt moved by the Lord to go to her back door and just try and see her. And it was a shaft of light which pierced the dreadful darkness. Greta was prevented from suicide and over the following weeks, meeting this neighbour, she found peace with God. My neighbour led me to the Lord, said Greta, and oh, how I love the Lord now. Wonderful. But the question is, of course, how many other Gretas are there out there? in our communities, around the church, perhaps putting on a brave face, but aching for the love of God, really. Do you see the vision? Can you see what God calls the church to be? 
A community that's different. A community that loves one another and therefore a place where the God of love is pleased to richly dwell. And can you see that all kinds of ridiculous stuff that goes on in churches where people fall out with one another and hold grudges against one another and tell tales on one another or whatever and don't forgive... Do you see that all that stuff ruins churches? It ruins God's design. It completely torpedoes the power of what a church ought to be. But can you see what God is calling a church to be? There it is. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives. God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Once we grasp the vision of the gospel being communicated in the context of love, the whole dynamic of the church changes. Yes, perhaps the pastor and one or two others with speaking gifts do carry the main responsibility for conveying the truth to people, but once we understand that the truth needs to be wrapped round, round with love, then it becomes clear that everybody in the church has a part to play. Everybody. Not just, well, we just leave it to the elders, but everybody as God's community. We we see we must love one another in church with kindness and encouragement. Do you ever come on a Sunday morning, before you come to church, do you ever think of someone perhaps in the church in need and you think, what can I say to that person to encourage them? Or do you just turn up? But do you come and say, come rather and say, now, what good can I do to other people in the church as we're together today? Kindness, encouragement, patience, humility. We see we need to be a loving church with practical help, not just on Sundays, such a wonderful thing that I think this church, so many people from, to come to the church, they, you live, I think, I'm told, within about half a mile of each other. A mile, half a mile. So you're, you're kind of in the community together. What opportunities there are because you are a real local church to show that love. To show that love, first of all, to each other. God comes. And that will give us an overflow of love to show to outsiders. What can we do to show the love of God more practically? So it should be like this. The church should be the shop window of the gospel. Here's the gospel, the truth of Christ. And here's what it does, the church. And people should be able to say, Ah, that's what the gospel can do. And God is there. And I just pray that that kind of vision may grab your church and you run with it into the future because God will bless you. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us 
and his love is made complete in us. Amen.